Good morning, Facebook family. Good morning, Garden family. Uh, once again, we are still here in an online-only format with the church doors still unfortunately locked. Um, and that's okay. That's okay because the church isn't about a building. It isn't about a specific location, but it's about a specific people called of God. So remember that while we still aren't coming together in physically in person um, and socially interacting and assembling ourselves together physically, we can still spiritually assemble ourselves together. We can still reach out to our brothers and sisters. We can still love one another in a very tangible way, even if that tangible way isn't a hug or a handshake or crying on one another's shoulders, we can still tangibly be the hands and feet of Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning that even though we're still in this unprecedented time and we're still doing things in a much different fashion than what we're used to, please continue to be the church. Continue to seek God's face and continue to seek ways to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So I want to remind everybody that we are still doing... Um, the uh, website, we're still doing the live worship, we're still doing the online giving and all of those areas are still available. So we are available for anyone who wants prayer, anyone who wants counseling, anyone who wants just an ear to listen and vent some of their frustrations. Any need that may be presented, we will do our best to answer it because we, like I said, we are the church and we still want to function as the church regardless of whether or not we're meeting at a physical location. So with that being said, I just want to I just wanted to lay that out there and continue to encourage you guys even though we're in an unprecedented time, even though this is something so unusual and it's probably not everybody's preference. Let's continue to dig in. Let's continue to to press in and this thing will end. This time will pass. This too shall pass and we will step into a brighter future. The best is still yet to come. So if you would, before we get into the word, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for this opportunity. As I've said so many times and already said several times here this morning, this may not be our ideal scenario or even our preferred situation, but God, it's a situation that you've allowed to come and it's a situation that you're no doubt moving in and you're no doubt working through. So God, as we're in this unprecedented time, as we're dealing with these unprecedented things, Lord, I pray that you become even more tangible, even more real to those who are seeking your face. Lord, while they're socially distanced, and as we begin to see things open back up and we begin to take steps towards um, normalcy and back to life as what we knew it before this time came and before this virus, Lord, as we begin to take those steps, Lord, let us just take those steps in faith Take those steps in dependence upon you, knowing, God, that you're using this to work for our good and for your glory. And Lord, I would ask that this morning as we dig into the word and as the message goes forth, I would ask that it be your message and not mine. I would ask that it be your words and not mine. And I would ask that you empower the message to penetrate even the hardest hearts, to penetrate the defenses that we so often put up, Lord Jesus, in lieu of change, we often raise walls. When the potter's hands reaches to mold us, we often stiffen ourselves up because we like to talk about change. We like to talk about growth. But Lord, so often when the change happens and when the growth comes, we reject it. And God, I pray that that's not the case this morning. 
Lord, I pray that when the word comes forth to circumcise our hearts and to administer change and to mold us and form us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, that we yield ourselves as a willing vessel, as a willing lump of clay for the potter's hands. Lord, I can't tell you how heavy that's weighing on my heart that we would yield ourselves and let you do a work in us. Let you minister to us and to mold us and to shape us and to form us and fashion us in your image. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be in uh, 1 John again. Last week uh, we started a two-part message called Isn't It Obvious? If you guys remember um, a couple of weeks ago we celebrated Easter and we celebrated you know the death and the burial and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you know we talked about the glory of the risen King and that this is the foundation for which our entire faith rests. If Jesus Christ isn't raised from the dead then we believe in vain then we live our life in vain if only in this life do we have hope then we're of all men most miserable and so we began a journey from that point and the week following we preached a message called what's next like okay I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins as a substitutionary sacrifice I believe that he rose from the dead and I've confessed him as my Lord and Savior and surrendered my life to him so what next and we found out that there really is no next as in the moving from that but there's a continuing through that. So we don't move away from the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We abide there because that's where the presence is. The presence of God is found in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we realize that where the presence of God is, there the peace of God is. And if we can abide in His presence and find His peace, then that's where we will receive His promise and ultimately His power to accomplish His purpose. And so we preached that message and we began to delve into prayer and how to pray and how to believe and how to pray for one another and how to abide in that position of prayer waiting upon the Lord. And then we moved into last week and I said, okay, now we have realized that we're abiding in this place of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we're praying for one another and we're seeking God's face and we're waiting upon his will so how do we know that we're doing this how do we know that we're doing the Christian life right and we began this journey of isn't it obvious because first John tells us that there's two things that make it extremely obvious not if you do a little digging you'll realize not if you have to play the detective you might find it no it's obvious that a Christian is a child of God by these two things and it's obvious that someone is not a child of God but rather a child of the devil by these two things and they were sanctification purity doing righteous works and loving one another and so last week we talked about sanctification and we delved into different types of sanctification and what that actually meant and that sanctification is just a separation from the world and a separation unto God and then a further separation and distinction set apart for the work of God and we began to really press into what it is to have a righteous life before God and what it is to purify ourselves based upon the hope of Jesus Christ that we purify ourselves because he is pure and we're not doing so the pastor can see us we're not doing it so that everybody around us can see us we're doing it because that's what pleases the father and if our desire is to please the father then ultimately he will reward us in the open because the father who sees in secret rewards us openly and so everyone will begin to know that there's something about us that makes us different and it will become obvious that we're children of God and so building off of that I wanted to start today with the verse that we ended on last week we Last week we did 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. 
This week we're going to do 1 John 3 and we're going to start with verse 10 and press on to verse 18 and then see kind of where we go from there. I want to make a confession and an open disclaimer for you guys. First of all, the disclaimer is I am not lazy. But the open confession is I did not study for this message. I set apart the time to study for this message. I did pray over this message, but I really felt in my heart, and I actually confessed to my wife Faith yesterday or last night, that it felt unusual because I felt in my heart that this wasn't supposed to be something rehearsed. This wasn't supposed to be something planned in advance. This wasn't supposed to be something that was set up and designed according to a format or what Chris Aaron thought would be a good idea to preach upon the premise of loving one another. This is supposed to be a flow or an overflow of the love of God and just seeing where the Spirit takes us this morning. So if I bumble and stumble and make myself look like a fool, that's why. And you can blame it on God. Or at least blame it upon my reception of the divine word given to me through the Holy Spirit. Maybe I just misheard it and missed the mark completely. But I'm going to step out in faith with no notes, no study, no rehearsal, no plan, and just see where God takes us. And I don't say that braggingly or boastingly because it makes me a nervous wreck to get up here and I have no plan. I have no desired outcome. I'm just trying to be obedient to God and this is the direction I feel like he's taking us. So that's my disclaimer and that's my confession this morning. So we'll see how that pans out. We're going to start in verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. That's what we were just discussing. The first one is anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. We went over that last week. Sanctification, purifying ourselves. But this is the part where I want to focus. Nor the one who does not love his brother. Nor the one who does not love his brother. So if you do not love your brother, then you are not of God. You are a child of the devil. It's essentially what it's saying and it's strong language. For this message, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. From the beginning, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, going back to Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteousness. This is just the comparison of the children of God and the children of the devil. Cain slew Abel because Abel did a righteous thing before God. And Cain, comparing himself to his brother did evil and therefore murdered and slew his brother. See, if we're comparing ourselves one to another and we're weighing, okay, are their works better than mine, then that's going to create anger and animosity and enmity between each other. But if our focus is solely upon pleasing God, then I'm not going to look at what you offer or what you bring to the table. I'm going to look at what I bring, and if it's not accepting are pleasing in God's sight, then I'm going to try and bring something better and up my game. Or if I am pleasing, then I'm not going to stop there and I'm going to try to go even further and be even more pleasing to God because I'm focused on my relationship with God and I'm not focused on whether or not my relationship with God is as good or better than your relationship with God. Because all that does is bring anger and jealousy and envy and enmity and animosity and all of those things and they just compound and you can't love your brothers and sisters in Christ or even your fellow citizens in the world. You can't love them if you're constantly comparing. Because comparison, and we've talked about this on, disciple, on our discipleship, comparison always leads to one or two outcomes. One, you're either going to belittle them so that you can justify yourself. You're either going to say, well, they're really not that good, or their gift or their bringing forth what they offered to God really isn't that great. 
so that you can feel better about what you've done. Or you're going to demean and belittle yourself until you hate your own self and you're condemning yourself and that's going to separate you from God. Either outcome is horrible. Comparing ourselves one to another is never yielding a good outcome. It always brings enmity and animosity and anger. But if we would simply focus on our relationship with God and only look to our brother and sister's works if, to encourage them and provoke them unto better works and unto love, then we would be able to love one another and pray for one another effectively. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So this is a marker. Loving one another is a marker saying that you have passed out of death and into life. You are converted. That's a telltale sign of your conversion. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is strong language. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus says, No greater love hath any man than this, that he be willing to lay his, down his life for his brother. I want to let you guys know, so often we focus upon that and we kind of get this image in our mind of, you know, somebody standing there and a stranger pulls a gun on him and shoots and you dive in front of the bullet and we're like, that's laying down your life. That's an aspect of it, being willing to die for one another. Romans 5 talks about Jesus and it says, you know, someone might die for a good man. Peradventure, someone might die for a decent person or a righteous person. But God commends His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. That shows the greatest height that love can reach is being willing to die for someone else, especially your enemy. But that's not the only aspect of laying down your life. An aspect of laying down your life is putting works behind your words. We're going to see here in just a few verses that John says, don't love in word only, but also in deed. Laying down your life may mean that you have plans. Today is mine and face anniversary. We've been married six years. Praise God. She's put up with me for six years. And so we have anniversary plans. You have a general idea of some things that you want to do. You know, last night we had an anniversary dinner. And, you know, you have these things that you want to do for your anniversary or for your birthday or for Christmas or whatever. Laying down your life may be that when your brother or sister or someone in need calls you and says, Hey, I know that this is a bad time, but my car just broke down or my so-and-so sick and they need to be taken to the emergency room. I don't have any way to get them there. Can you please help me? It may mean canceling your plans. It may be changing your schedule. It may be doing things that you don't want to do that take away from the things that you do want to do to help someone and to show them a tangible act of love. That is laying your life down. That is putting your life on hold or putting your life to the side so that you can help and show others that you do have love. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? He's just building on this case. He's saying, lay down your life for the brethren. If you're willing to lay down your life, then you're not going to have something that they need and withhold it from them. Can you imagine what kind of God we would think, or what we would think of God with all of the riches that he has if he was, willing, if he was unwilling to share eternal life with us? 
if he was unwilling to share Jesus with us, if he was unwilling to bless us with the Holy Spirit, if he was unwilling to give good gifts unto his children, we would think very negatively of him. But the same thing is that we would think negatively of if God did, we do all the time. So-and-so asks us, or someone asks us for, you know, money because they're in a financial crunch, and we have money in the bank, but we refuse them. You know, maybe we think, well, they're not going to use the money for what they say they're going to use it for. That's not your concern. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to not judge what they're going to use the money for. Your responsibility is to love unconditionally. Your responsibility is to love one another. Your responsibility is to be the hands and feet of Jesus, not to discern what they do with the gift or the generosity that you bestow. You're not judged for their stewardship of your gift. You're judged for your gift. And it's just building that case. You have to love. There has to be works behind the love. We've preached that message before. Faith without works is dead. I would say this. Love without works is a lie. Faith without works may be dead. But love without works is a lie. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in, with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. In deed and truth. And see, John builds that statement for me. I said that love without works is a lie. John says it for me. Let us not love with word or tongue. Don't just say that you love people, but back it up with deed and truth. Back it up with works and truth. So if he's saying back it up with works and truth, then what he's essentially saying is that if you're saying that you love with words and with your tongue, but there's no works, then there's no truth. So he's saying the same thing that I just said. Love without works is a lie. You can say that you love someone all day long, but if there's no works behind that saying, then do you really love them? Well, the Bible would say no. The Bible would say that if you do not have works behind your words, then your words are a lie. That's some pretty tough language. Some pretty tough language. We started out looking at Cain and Abel. And Cain made his brother, his own brother, his enemy, and murdered him based upon envy and strife and jealousy. I want to go to the words of Jesus. And I want to kind of start building a case here. So in Luke chapter 10, I have the scriptures put there. It's Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25. But Jesus is doing some teaching and parables. And he ends up telling his disciples, you know, bless are your eyes because of what they see and your ears because of what they hear. And then a lawyer, in verse 25, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, testing Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. See how those two are related? So often we separate them as the two great commandments, but they're really essentially one. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, then you're automatically going to love your neighbor as yourself because you cannot have that much love for God and not have that love reflect to those around you. If you have that relationship with God and His love is in your heart, then it's going to overflow to those around you. But wishing to justify himself to Jesus. So the lawyer, 
and we know how lawyers can do. <laughs> Argumentative, wishing to justify himself, wishing to argue his case. But who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So he's trying to get out. And this is what we do all the time. He's trying to get out of loving everyone. Jesus says, love the Lord your God. The law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And so what we do is we say, okay, I need to love my family in a certain way. I need to love my spouse in a specific way. I need to love my children in a specific way. I need to love my friends in a different kind of way. I need to love those in the church in a different kind of way from that. And I need to love those outside of the body of Christ in even a different way. So my love for those outside the body of Christ don't really have to be that great. And so we build this hierarchy or stratification of love. Like, okay, this is the base love, just a general generic love. You know, I love them, but I'm not going to do anything for them. You know, I love these a little bit more, so I'm not willing to make a few sacrifices. And you build your way all the way up to the top. And you're like, well, I'll be willing to do anything for my spouse. And then God, just above that, I'll be willing to do anything for God. But I might, eh, it's kind of iffy, you know. There might be a few things I wouldn't do for my children. I'm not saying me personally, I'm just saying this is what we do. But, you know, once, as long as they're little kids, I'll do anything for them. But once they get to like, you know, 16, 17, 18, and they're out of the house, there might be a few things I might not do. Um, and then, you know, my friends, I do a lot, but there might be a few things that I wouldn't be willing to do for my friends. Um, those in the church, I'm going to do a lot for them, but there's a lot of things I won't do for them also. And then those in the world, you know, I probably, I might do a couple things, but there's a vast amount of things that I wouldn't be willing to do. And I know that sounds confusing because I'm, I'm just trying to layer this. We build this hierarchy or this pyramid structure. And if you're up here in our category of love, then we're willing to do absolutely anything. But if you're down here, then there's reservations about what we will actually do and claim love. And yours hierarchy may be different than mine. You may say, well, if they're not in the church, I'm not going to do anything for them. Or, do you know what they did to me? Isn't that such a common thing? Do you know what kind of hurt they threw on me? Do you know the things that I've suffered because of them? And so we put up this wall and we're like, okay, they're, they're my enemy. And we may not call them our enemy, but that in our mind, if we're just going to be transparent and on, honest and proceed with candor, then that's exactly what they are. We have made them our enemy because of the experiences we've had. We just don't like them. We think they're the type of people that have extra grace required. And there are those people. There are people that get on your nerves. I'm not saying that there's not or there's anything wrong with that because we have different personalities and personality conflicts. But when we say that we are not going to do anything for somebody because of the things that they've done to us and we're going to separate ourselves from them, then we have classified and made them as our enemies. We have made them our enemies. Jesus replied, and he begins to tell a story. Don't forget about that. We have made them our enemies. We make people our enemies. That's important. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So he just says a man. But because he doesn't specify what man, it's generally assumed at least in my mind, 
that he's talking about a Jew. He's talking to a lawyer. He's talking to a Jewish lawyer, most likely. And so when he says a man, the lawyer's naturally just going to perceive, well, he's talking about a Jew. He's talking about somebody. Because if he wasn't talking about a Jew, then he would specify that it wasn't a Jew that he was talking about. He would make that specification. So he's just a Jewish man fell among robbers and he was mugged and he was stripped of his clothes and he was beat and he was left for dead. And then he get, and then it gets interesting. And by chance, a priest, which is kind of like in Jewish hierarchy, a priest is, is where it's at. You know, they don't have the monarchy anymore. They don't have, you know, their specific king because they're under Roman oppression. So a priest is, you know, just one step. You've got the high God, high priest, priest, and then, you know, the tribe of Levi and then the rest of the people, essentially. So you've got one of the best people in our mind's eye. So you could say a celebrity. You could say a good person. The ideal Jew passes by. And when the priest sees him, he passes him on the other side. Doesn't even pass by him on the same side of the road, but goes all the way to the other side of the road to go around him. And just leaves him there. And then he continues it and he says, And then a Levite came, which is, you know, just a member of the tribe of Levi where the priesthood was taken from. So, you know, pretty pretty prominent. You know, this is Moses' uh, lineage here. You know, Moses was a Levite. Aaron was a Levite. So it's pretty prominent. And he came to the place and saw him. And he also passed by on the other side. Just went around. But a Samaritan. Come on, you guys. If you guys remember... John chapter 4, if you guys remember uh, Discipleship Live uh, last week or the week before, you know, we've talked about Samaritans. We've talked about, you know, how they were enemies. You know, the Samaritans fought against uh, the Jews in the Hundred Years' War. The Samaritans to desecrate the Jewish temple to put dead bones in there. The Samaritans, when the Assyrians came in and took uh, the northern kingdom or Israel captive, the Samaritans are half-bred. They're Jews mixed with the Assyrians and they're lesser people. They denied having Jewish heritage so that they wouldn't be taken into a second captivity. You know, all of these things, the Samaritans are the enemies of the Jews. In the Jewish mindset, they're half-breeds. They don't worship the same God. They put a pagan temple in the, um, to a Roman emperor in their city. You know, all of these things to make them separate from the Jewish people. To make them enemies. Half-breeds, lesser than. So his enemy... I know we don't get the context of that all the time because we just read, oh, a Samaritan guy. So he's just talking about, you know, his nationality. No big deal. No, it is a big deal. He was his enemy. A Jewish man... And a Samaritan, enemies, by the cultural context of the passage. But his enemy, let's read it that way. His enemy, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So he took the guy. When his Jews, his own countrymen, the priest who was supposed to be the one that they looked to for the will and the word of God, the Levite who they looked to as being a prominent member of society, a, a servant to the priest, you know, the list goes on there, they both passed by and left the man for dead. But then his enemy comes along, or someone that he would have classified as his enemy comes along, doesn't leave him for dead, takes him, bandages him up, 
sacrifices his own belongings, puts him on his donkey or his beast, and then walks, because they're not both riding the beast, he puts him over the beast, and then he walks. So it's extra work, extra time, probably delayed his journey, to carry him to an inn. And he took care of him that evening. And the next day, he took out two denarii, or a day's wage, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, you take care of him, and whatever more you spend. So don't stop at the two days wage that I've set aside. Don't stop at the two denarii. But if you spend more than that and that's required to take care of him, then when I return, I'll make it even. And I'll repay you. And so then Jesus stops the story and he says, Now which of these three do you think to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said, Go and do the same. Jesus flips the script here. And he takes away the context of neighbor. See, you think neighbor and you think Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. You think, okay, I'm talking about the people that live in the same area as me, maybe in the house next door. That's my neighbor. No. Neighbor is anyone and everyone. Because Jesus says, who do you think was the neighbor to the man? He says, well, the Samaritan. His enemy became his neighbor by the actions that he showed. And Jesus says, you go and do the same. You go and do the same. Meaning you go and show kindness and show goodness and show love to even those people that you might classify as your enemies, even those people that might classify you as their enemies, even those people that culture and society might classify you as being different people, groups, and enemies one to another. Doesn't matter. Show them love. Show them love in a tangible way. Put deeds and works with your love. Don't just let it be words only and you say, oh yeah, I love you, buddy. And church, Honestly, more lies are told in church between congregants and during times of worship and at a funeral than I think anywhere else except maybe in the news. Because we, all the time, people be like, shake your hand, give you a hug, and say, I love you, you know. Do they? Because love requires blood. Love requires sacrifice. Love requires works. But those people that tell you that they love you and the people that you tell that you love them, are there any works behind that love? Or is it just words only? Is it just you saying, I love you, for the sake of saying that you love them because it's a Christian catchphrase, it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to say? Or do you actually mean it when you say it? Because if you say it, then you need to mean it. Come on, how many times in relationships growing up, you know, in our society, you know, especially in the high school age, you know, you, <laughs> I laugh because, you know, you have, you know, nieces and I have nieces and nephews and they're in the high school age range and, you know, they'll be, you know, dating or uh, going out, whatever they call it, um, with, uh, you know, someone for like two days. And man, they'll make Facebook and Instagram posts and it's like the person hung the moon. I mean, the accolades they bestow on these people and they're like, I love you forever. And forever to them means like two weeks. But it's hilarious because love in our culture is just thrown around. You know, I'm dating somebody for two days. I love you. You know, I go to grab a hamburger at McDonald's. Oh man, I love this Big Mac go to I love Red Lobster I love Target I love shopping I love I love I love I love and it just becomes such a blank empty word 
because we use it for everything. But what if we actually put feeling and power behind that word? What if when I said that I loved you as a a pastor to a congregant or as one Christian to another, as just one human being to another, what if when I said I loved you, you automatically knew that that meant I would be willing to set my life on hold to help you out of whatever situation you are in to the end of perhaps even giving my own life up and dying for you. What if love meant that? What if that's how we used love? What if when I said I loved you that I was willing to back it up? How different of a place the church would be if everyone that told you that they loved you was willing to do anything to show it and to prove it. Not just to you, but to God and to the rest of the world watching. Because Jesus says, by this they will know that I have risen, that the word is true, that Christianity is for real, the whole night by this, that you love one another. And when we looked at 1 John, what the apostle is laboring there is these two things make it obvious. One, you're righteous living, not for you, not for the pastor, not for those around you, but you're righteous living for the sake of purifying yourself as Jesus Christ is pure. That will make it obvious. That will make it obvious that Christ is real because you're living a righteous life not to prove anything, not to gain anything, but simply to please your Father. And the second thing is that you love one another. And that you love one another with sacrifice behind it, with deeds and works behind it, not just with words only, but you actually and legitimately love one another. And you're willing to put everything on hold and lay your life down. And so when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, it's the same principle. Cain and Abel, it's the same principle. You've heard this from the beginning. It's not a new commandment. It's the very intent of God. It's the very purpose that He created mankind is to be an object, a recipient of His love. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Even when Adam fell, he still came at the same time and in the same fashion. And Adam's descendants, Cain and Abel, even though they were plagued by the curse and they want to offer sacrifices to God, he still accepted their sacrifices. He rejected Cain's because Cain tried to take the short way out and tried to cheat God, and God rejected it. And he even told him, he said, If you do good, will you not be accepted also? It wasn't that you're not as good as Abel. It's like if you do what Abel did, if you do the same thing, then you'll be accepted also because God's desire was love. So it's the same principle from Genesis all the way through Revelation and on into eternity forevermore. It's the same principle, love. That's the very basis of Christianity. God loved the world. He gave His Son through Jesus Christ. We experience the love of God and we have that love of God that we can reflect and reciprocate out to one another. So therefore, we receive the love of God and we reflect it back to Him, loving God, and reflect it out to everyone else. Love God, love people. The greatest commandment. Not two greatest commandments, the one. You love God, you will love people. And that love will not be a vain, empty word, but it will be an action backed with demonstration. Let's flip over to Matthew 5 and kind of bring this to a close. Hopefully this has made sense. Hopefully you know what the message that I'm trying to push. We're going to be in verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. I'll give you just a second. So when Jesus tells the story, the purpose was defining who the neighbor was. That was the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus tells the story and then asks the lawyer, who would you say is the neighbor to the man? And he said, the Samaritan. So the neighbor would be the one that did good deeds, right? Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons and daughters, that's what that word means, sons and daughters, that, so that you may be, let's put it in the first John context, so that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven, so that you may be the children of God. Remember, by this, by these two things, are the children of God and the children of the devil made obvious. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors and sinners do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what it is said. You love those that are just like you. You're a Jew, love Jews. You're a Samaritan, love Samaritans. You know, not to step on anybody's toes, but you're American, love Americans. You're white, love white. You're black, love black. Hispanic, love Hispanic. But hate everybody else. Hate your enemies. And Jesus blows that up. He says, but I say to you, I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Then that's hard. That's hard. Because you love your enemies, not expecting your love to immediately make them not your enemies, but loving them in spite of the fact that they still call you their enemy. Loving them while they hurt you, loving them while they stab you in the back, loving you loving them while they talk about you loving them knowing that they couldn't care less and they you know thinking about them and praying for them when they probably haven't thought about you in years love your enemies and pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you for the purpose that you may be the children of your God, father in heaven and it backs it up with God's actions here for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Meaning that God, natural circumstances, blessings happen to those who are evil. You wonder why the wicked prosper. Here it is. You wonder why sometimes righteous people suffer. Here it is. It's because God extends common grace to all men. And people experience good and bad. Because His love is for the whole world. Christ died for all men. His love is for the world. God so loved the world that He sent His Son to die. God sent His Son to die because of His love for the world. He didn't send His Son to die just for the people that believe. He didn't send His Son to die just for the elect, the people that He set aside and everybody else is sent to hell regardless no, He sent His Son to die for the world. To make provision so that all could enter in. Now granted, He knows those that will enter in. But He sent His Son to die for the whole world. 
Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. And it's because of His love. And Jesus Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Jesus Christ died for us while we were still the enemies of God. So this mindset that we have, this natural mindset that we can love those that love us, that we can do good to those that do good to us, that we repay an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that we act to those and reciprocate exactly what we receive, that is not a New Testament Christianity. That is not the biblical Christianity. The biblical Christianity is to turn the other cheek. The biblical Christianity is to love those that hate you, to love your enemies, to do good to those that use you and persecute you and despitefully use you, to bless those that curse you. The biblical Christianity is to show the love of God even if you're not receiving any of that in return. The biblical Christianity is to show and demonstrate the love of God to everyone regardless of circumstance. And that is a hard pill to swallow. That is a hard truth because we want people to feel the pain that we feel when we're hurt we want to lash out and hurt them when we're attacked we want to attack when we want to put up our dukes and put up our defenses and we want to go to war with our enemies and Jesus says lay the weapons down and love your enemies love your enemies and the goal the summation of it is you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect, we can break that down in a million different ways, but simply put, you are to be mature and complete as your heavenly Father is. And one of the ways that we move on to maturity is getting this down, loving our enemies and loving them not just in word or in tongue, but loving them in deed and in truth. Faith without works is dead. Love without works is a lie. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I simply just open this word up and tried my best to communicate your truth for good or bad. Lord, regardless of what the outcome is, I'm not responsible or judged for the outcome. I'm responsible and I'm judged for my faithfulness and my stewardship of my responsibility. God, I just pray that this message was challenging and enlightening. I pray that it penetrated even the hardest hearts. I pray that it was able to fall upon good ground. And the ears who hear this message, I pray that they don't just let it go in one ear and out the other, but I pray that they take it, that they process it, and that they are able, through the Holy Spirit's help, to apply it to their life and to begin to truly show the undiluted love of God. Because so often we serve a diluted or watered-down mixture and we'll show part of the love of God and part of the love of ourselves. Lord, we're supposed to be a different people. We're supposed to react and operate different than the way that the world and those in it react and operate. And Lord, for so long, we as Christians are indistinguishable from the world because when we're attacked, we attack back. When we're persecuted, we persecute back. When we're hated, we hate back. 
we go to war just like the rest of the world goes to war. And I'm not talking about war to defend your country and your family. I'm not talking about that. I don't want to be misconstrued in that. I'm talking about we go to war with one another over silly things. Over silly things. We hate and backbite and slander and gossip and just like the world does. Lord, I think the day needs to come where the true saints of God get a hold of the true love of God and can reflect that to a dying world that needs love. Everybody wants to be loved, whether they're honest with themselves or others or not. Let us be that light, the light of love in the darkness and midst of so much hate. Jesus, just please use this message. In Jesus' name, amen.